This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. This is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. Today on the show, concern, shock and hope for new Vanuatu workers abroad as they try to contact loved ones hit by devastating twin Category 4 cyclones. It's sad that we're here, but yeah, it's a good thing that we are because we can help them as well to send them some money. And in Guam, researchers are looking at the impact of sunken warships and artillery on the environment. But surprisingly, it's not all bad news. Because these submerged artifacts from World War II are now really integrated into the ecosystem. They're part of the coral reef structure. They're providing habitat for fish and other sea life. And a landmark high seas treaty has been passed, protecting a third of the world's oceans. I mean, this is huge. This is um, really, I think, a, a keystone agreement if, if we're going to try and protect 30% of the ocean. All that and more today on the show. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. So glad to have your company. First, though, to Vanuatu, where it's estimated almost 80% of the country is affected by twin cyclones that battered the country just last week. Joining me now is UNICEF Vanuatu spokesperson, Rebecca, Rebecca Olul. A good morning to you, Rebecca. Good morning, Priyanka. Thanks for having me on the show today. Uh, thanks for joining us uh, during a difficult time, I'm sure. What sort of response efforts are taking place uh, by UNICEF there in Vanuatu? Well, we know that thousands of Nibanwata children are in urgent need in the aftermath of the two tropical cyclones that have just hit. Um, we know it from previous experience that there are issues related to water sanitation and hygiene, health and nutrition of newborns and under fives and pregnant women. We also know that children are at greater risk of abuse uh, at times like this. So from UNICEF's side, you know, we've got a team on the ground uh, who are here supporting the government. The National Disaster Management Office is sending out multi-sectoral rapid response teams as of today and UNICEF staff members in the areas of health and nutrition, WASH, education and child protection will also be part of these teams. Um, From the rapid assessments, we will get a better understanding of the immediate and urgent needs of children and be able to refine response plans to be able to support um, the immediate needs. Uh, And just to also say that we have uh, pre-precision supplies at our warehouse here, and today um, some of these supplies are being deployed to Tana in Tafia province to be on standby to support the response. These include hygiene kits, tarpaulins, tents for temporary learning spaces while um, school infrastructure uh, will need to be fixed. And we also have tents to support um, child-friendly spaces and support the psychosocial needs of of children and their families. Mm. Uh, We have more supplies arriving into the country tomorrow from our Fiji warehouse, as well as on Friday by sea and air. And these will um, be able to support with the ongoing response. Mm. From UNICEF's side, it really is critical to make sure that the lives of children, um, their parents and caregivers are able to, to return to some sense of normalcy as soon as possible so that children are being supported to, to, to thrive and to be able to reach their full potential. Mm. Uh, I mean, Rebecca, what, what are some of those particular risks that children face in disasters like these? I mean, you mes- mentioned an uptick in, in um, child abuse in, in these sort of cases. Why might that be the case? And, and what are, are the other sort of risks that children in particular face? 
Um, so we know that, you know, at uh, times like this, um, when you have a uh, hazard come through, like a cyclone, uh, that the structures that are normally in place to support community structures that are in place to support children um, might not be as functional and they might be fragile. And so children, you know, do end up being at greater risk of being abused. We already have, you know, high rates of violence against children. Um, and in times like this where families are more stressed, that becomes one of the issues. We also know um, that um, when you've got uh, a disaster like this and, uh, you know, water systems are down or damaged, that there are increased risk of uh, diarrhea outbreak. Uh, and we know these are particularly dangerous for newborns and children under five. So, you know, in terms of supplying dignity kits, we have soaps in there and hand washing is going to be really critical um, for mothers and caregivers to be able to make sure that they're protecting um, the little ones from, mm-hmm. from diseases like diarrhea. And Rebecca, do we know the um, scope of, of response needed and, and the scope of the, I guess, impact of the cyclones? I, I ask it particularly because we've been hearing from some people in the ground saying that um, Cyclone Pan in 2015 was much more devastating. That was, of course, a Category 5 cyclone and that people were quite um, heavily affected by that cyclone. And they have told us that these twin cyclones last year, last week, sorry, um, were luckily not as devastating. Uh, do you have an um, idea, Rebecca, just the scale of the damage and the scale of the response needed to respond to these cyclones in comparison to previous ones? Um, so I also supported the response in PAM, and for sure that was a Category 5, so you expect a lot more damage. Uh, but these, with these two cyclones, it's, it's particularly devastating because, you know, they've, they've gone through the entire country. Uh, Cyclone PAM focused on um, on the central and southern islands of Vanuatu. But with both Judy and Kevin, they've swept through from up north in Provo province all the way down south. Um, and it's very unusual to have two cyclones at one time. So, of course, the impacts uh, are going to be different, and in a way, they are going to be greater. The numbers we are hearing um, from uh, the disaster management office here is that, you know, 100% of the country was affected, but that at least... 150,000 people, which is half the population of Vanuatu, um, will be in need of the national response. So yes, it is, um, it is different. And although it's, it's smaller category cyclones, the impacts I think are going to be greater and, and are going to be felt for, for years to come. Mm, yes, those twin cyclones, as you said, very, very rare, um, hitting the country in, in, I think, just a span of three days. Um, now, as you mentioned, Rebecca, schools, medical facilities and homes uh, have been damaged, in some cases completely destroyed. How is this in particular impacting families and, and their children? Well, I, w- I was in an evacuation centre on Sunday um, here in Port Villa where we were distributing supplies together with the Vanuatu Red Cross Society. And, you know, families talk about homes being completely destroyed. Mm-hmm. So it's not a matter of a temporary fix. It's going to be a new build for a lot of families. Um, and and so, you know, uh, not having a home to go back to. But it's not just roofs that are flying. When you've got roofs flying, you've got, you know, property that's being damaged things that might be of sentimental value as well. And so, you know, families are going to be in need of support 
uh, with with mental health support and psychosocial support to be able to get over over this and to be able to start to to rebuild their homes. For children, I spoke to a couple of children at the evacuation center, and um, you know they don't know when they will be able to go back to schools. In a lot of cases throughout the country, schools are the strongest infrastructure, and so are now housing evacuees as evacuation centers. That's going to prolong the time the children are able to go back to school. And we know that when children don't have that support system around them, um, that it really impacts on their mental health and the mental health of their parents and caregivers. So, yes, there, there is urgent need and there is, you know, a need to, to really get on the ground and, and, and start to support that. What are the states of the evacuation shelters there, Rebecca? I mean, you said you visited one. We're hearing reports that hundreds of people are staying at evacuation shelters around the country. Um, is that the case that you're seeing? Are these shelters equipped to handle the people using them? We know at the moment from the numbers that we have received that 2,000 people are in evacuation mm-hmm. centres. Uh, and the evacuation centres are in you know, stages of being able to support fully and, and not really having the appropriate um, infrastructure to support the needs of families. For instance, you know, the One Small Bag Evacuation Centre I went to had 95 households, about 450 people, 500 people staying in the one evacuation centre. And normally they don't take that many people, but it's hard to turn people away when they turn up and you're in the middle of a, of a storm or the second storm um, and to tell people to go away. Um, is not really the thing you do. Um, I, I noticed that, you know, wash infrastructures, you know, toilets and bathrooms, they're pretty stretched. Um, we don't have power currently in Port Vila, so that's adding to the issues around that and just, you know, safety as people are using wash facilities. So, you know, I would say that at best, uh, evacuation centers, you know, are meant to be temporary, but for how long these families are going to need to be able to rebuild their lives and move back into their homes, that's going to be the issue. Mm. Um, what are your priorities um, as part of UNICEF uh, in the days and weeks ahead? The priorities now is to get urgent supplies out to families. So we've got dignity kits, and, and as I mentioned, you know, there's soaps and, and other materials in there, including menstrual pads for, for women, and making sure that, you know, um, not just supplies, but that messaging around hygiene, making sure that uh, families are washing their hands before they are doing um, priority tasks so that they're keeping children safe, uh, making sure that um, important um, health and nutrition supplies are going out to support healthcare workers with doing the work that they continue to do because we know babies will still be born and, you know, there will be other issues around that. So making sure they've got the supplies to do that. Uh, in terms of education, it's as soon as possible setting up temporary learning spaces in tents and equipping it with school-in-a-box kits where children can, um, you know, get into a space of, of learning and, and, and a sense of normalcy. Uh, in terms of child protection, it's, it's providing that, you know, initial psychological first aid and psychosocial support to children and, and their families through play-based approaches. Uh, but today, as, as I say, today we have supplies uh, going out immediately to, ta- to Tana, to Tafea, which is one of the more affected provinces, and we have teams who will be going out to support with rapid response. Mm. Now, Rebecca, when we talk about these disasters and, and the response to these disasters, there's often um, an outpouring of, of support and also the outpouring of, of desire to help the people, um, particularly this time in Vanuatu. I, I don't know if you can answer this, but do you know the best ways people who might be listening that aren't in Vanuatu can can send their support, can help? 
That's a very important question, Priyanka. I appreciate you asking that. You know, I think there are well-meaning and, you know, good-hearted people out there who want to support. And sometimes you might think, you know, let's send materials, let's send clothes. But actually, that's not the best thing that people need right now. And from UNICEF, and I know that, you know, probably other agencies are doing it, we are receiving, um, we are receiving funds to be able to support with the response. So I would say, you know, if you're looking to support, please go on and find your, your charitable organizations like UNICEF, like uh, Save the Children and World Vision, and donate to them to be able to support the response here. Mm, that's good advice, uh, Rebecca. All the best for um, quite a lot of work you've got ahead of ahead, ahead of you there. Thank you so much for taking your, uh, the time to speak to us on Pacific Beat. Thank you, Priyanka. I appreciate it. That was UNICEF Vanuatu's spokesperson, Rebecca Olul, speaking to us there. And as she said, if you are listening and uh, you want to help the people in Vanuatu rec- recovering from those twin cyclones, do get in touch with your local organizations, either UNICEF, Red Cross, or, or a few of the other international charities that work in Vanuatu. Um, as Rebecca said, that's the best way to help. And staying in Vanuatu and speaking of aid, Australian aid has arrived to help with the recovery from Cyclone Judy and Cyclone Kevin. Following a request from the Vanuatu government, HMAS Canberra and two RAAF planes have been deployed to assess the damage and deliver humanitarian assistance, shelter and water purification supplies. Here's Australia's Rapid Assessment Team Coordinator, Barnaby Caddy. So our um, rapid assessment team has 12 members um, and those members are sourced their uh, officers from uh, federal, state and, um, and uh, territory uh, jurisdictions. Uh, and we have a wide range of skills, including humanitarian assessment, um, damage assessment, hazmat, um, power, power lines, um, health and um, infrastructure. Um, and also um, joining us, we've got three um, DFAT Uh, crisis response team members. So as soon as we get on the ground, um, we will work with the government of Vanuatu to assist them in any way we can to get a clearer understanding of what the needs are on the ground in terms of damage assessments and and, um, recommendations and things like that. um, We've also, on the uh, flight we're arriving on, we have um, some humanitarian supplies. So that includes shelter, uh, shelter supplies, and also things like um, just essential items that people who may have lost their homes or in evacuation centres might need. Um, We've also um, got a um, Royal Australian Air Force plane um, that will be going to Vanuatu to help with um, aerial surveillance. The rapid assessment that we'll be doing when we land, as well as the um, delivery of humanitarian supplies, will comprise Australia's initial rapid assistance package to uh, the government of Vanuatu. That was Australia's rapid assessment team coordinator, Barnaby Caddy. And as the cleanup in Vanuatu continues, seasonal, seasonal workers in Australia are raising money for their families back home. Our reporter Jordan Fennell spoke with Samantha Kalunga, a new Vanuatu seasonal worker based in Queensland, who said it's been a tough few days watching the cyclones unfold from afar. Because you all came from the all parts of Vanuatu, from northern province to the south of Vanuatu, so some of our families, some of our friends here lost their homes from uh, Sheva province, from where I came from, and the southern province of Vanuatu, which is uh, Tana. 
Tavia province. Some of them, but uh, they haven't spoken to their families yet since uh, Judith and Kevin passed. Mm, okay. so they all feel bad. So, yeah, we are the service yesterday to remembrance of uh, some of our families that lost their homes. And uh, no food, some no clean water to drink. Yeah, but it's sad that we're here. But yeah, it's, it's good thing that we are because we can help them as well to send them some money. I can hear that it's quite emotional for you at the moment right now. Yeah. Some of them have, uh, like, we have gardening, but because the cycle is too strong, category four and category five, so they come with all the food in gardening, like bananas, uh, mango, or any fruit. So I think now we rely on Kavman or the head donors to support our families back home. Yes, it must be incredibly tough to not be with your family during a time like this at the moment. But you were saying that, uh, do you feel, I guess, bolstered by the knowledge that because you're working as seasonal workers, you're able to send that money back home to take care of them? Yeah, from now, I think uh, we will send some money. We just raised some money yesterday just to help uh, the NGO, just to send to the NDMO in Vanuatu to support some of the families in need. But... And uh, I know that the workers have their personal uh, needs and have their own families, so they will send money back to the Western Union when all the works are started again. Because right at the moment, I think the Western Union didn't open yet because of some of the uh, power went down in Vanuatu uh, in Port Fila. And how are you feeling personally at the moment, Samantha, watching this all play out uh, from afar? You know, it's uh, it's not easy when we are away from the family and we are the cyclone to see them. But yeah, it's not good. Uh, we didn't expect uh, the cyclone to come. That's twice. I mean, two. I mean, a day. It's a full day. So yeah. And um, have you been able to speak with your family back home? Yeah, when two strikes, uh, Vanuatu, I haven't spoken to them until uh, Kevin comes again. I think just yesterday morning. It's uh, there that I talked to my parents, but. The network was not clear because of the towers from uh, from the network are down. So it's not really good with talking to them and asking them how are they, uh, everything's fine. Oh yeah, it's not good contact yet. How, wh- how what does it feel like? I guess not being able to get clear communication from your family right now. So yeah, like um, now we come with like is the house okay or families are okay? But we we believe in God that God saves them. We know that they are safe and they are good and because. It doesn't matter if the house are gone, but because you can rebuild the house and you can rebuild the life if the life is taken away by the cycle. And that was Ani Vanuatu seasonal worker Samantha Kalanga speaking there to our reporter Jordan Fennell. That sound means it's time to find out what's making news around the region here on Pacific Beat. And to do that, as always, we're joined by reporter Kyle Evans. Good morning, Kyle. Good morning, Priyanka. Now, uh, let's start with um, the Federated States of Micronesia. The country is going to the polls today. Um, We had President Panuelo on the show yesterday talking about it. Um, What's the latest? What can you tell us about the voting? Yeah, that's right. So uh, exciting day. Uh, Representatives um, from PIF will actually head over for it as well, and they'll be watching 14 seats uh, in FSM's Congress, uh, which will be contested by 29 candidates. So uh, this is reported by RNZ, and it's a 
pretty interesting format as well. So one contestant will be elected in each of our FSM's four states who will serve what's called a at-large term of four years, uh, while the other 10 elected representatives will serve a two-year term. Uh, from there, Congress will go and elect a president and vice president uh, from those four states. Yes, as President Panuelo was telling us yesterday, it'll be around May that that final vote for the president and vice president will happen. So it's sort of like a two-stage voting, um, but it is Congress, of course, that elects the president and vice president. Um, so we won't find, I guess, those key seats, um, those key jobs until later uh, later in the year. Um, but you mentioned that the Pacific Islands Forum have landed in the country to uh, conduct obs- observations of the election. Do we know exactly what outcome will come from, from their visit? Yeah, so details were quite vague, but uh, they'll, they'll essentially be there to watch and, and observe. Uh, they'll also make a post-election statement uh, with a summary of exactly what they've seen take place uh, over the course of the election process, uh, and they'll make a final report uh, thereafter, which I'm sure we'll all be able to uh, to read and pick apart. Yes, so the, um, yes, those observers from Pacific Islands Forum are often sent out to um, elections around the region, and their job there is to make sure they but they go through um, transparently that there are no um, errors in, in voting, um, that pe- all people are able to vote freely and fairly. So a very important role. Um, sometimes uh, representatives from the UN also take um, come to countries to also oversee the elections there. Um, so an important role. Uh, and yes, we'll all uh, keep you updated about the outcome of those votes uh, here on Pacific Beat. Um, now let's head uh, to a story reported in Solomon Islands about two seasonal workers suing their Australian employers. Uh, can you tell us more about this uh, alleged case? Yeah, a bit of a concerning one here. So this is uh, in regards to the two Solomon Island men uh, suing for injuries they sustained uh, in the course of duty. Uh, so this is reported by the Solomon Star. Uh, both worked on farms in North Queensland in Australia uh, under the Australian government's Pacific Labor Mobility Program. Uh, it's understood one of the workers fell and fractured his hand while he was lifting a bag uh, that he believes should have been carried by two people. Um, as a result, he needed surgery. However, his employee told him uh, his visa would be cancelled uh, if he has more than a month off work. And as far as I'm aware, he's actually still off work due to that injury. Um, and to make matters worse, he alleges that his, his employer made no effort to help with those medical needs. Yeah, so of course, these are all allegations that um, will come out through the cases um, that are working its way through the courts. We understand this is reported by Solomon Star, but we'll have a look at um, the, the outcomes, I guess, of these cases uh, here. You, you mentioned there were two workers. Uh, what are the allegations uh, for the other case or is it a single case? That's two, so two separate cases, two separate farms, two separate men and yeah the, the other actually fell off the back of a land cruiser which he alleges was being driven uh, uh, by his boss and, and spent two weeks in hospital for, for spinal shock actually so yeah re- really concerning there. Uh, he alleges his boss actually sped up as well as, as he mm. was sort of sitting in the back of the truck and was lucky to be alive. Um, and it, yeah, again, it kind of gets gets worse from there as well. He alleges that he was actually put back to work before he had fully recovered. So, yeah, both those cases cases have been picked up by a law firm, and we'll we'll see how they pan out. Yes, and this is being reported by Solomon Star. If you want any more details, um, head on to there. But we will try and um, verify all of this. Um, the allegations sound serious, of course, but are just allegations at this stage as the case makes its way through the courts. 
Now let's head to Papua New Guinea, where the retired military camp, uh, commander Jerry Singerak, who was on our show mm-hmm. a couple of weeks ago, talking about this very story about his pitch to Hollywood producers in Los Angeles. He's since returned. Do we know how those pitch meetings went? Uh, very well, uh, according to the Post Courier, who wrote mm. that uh, he's returned with a um, full heart and a full mind. It sounds like a Friday Night Lights quote, doesn't it? <laughs> but uh, no, he, he got back on uh, Thursday and uh, and told the newspaper that the country will know in two weeks uh, if the pitch was good enough to be turned into a film. Uh, the pitch, of course, is based uh, on his book, which centers around the Sandline Affair, which which took place back back in the nineties. Um, and so, yeah, that the first stage was basically to pitch to Hollywood producers, uh, which he's done. There's one more stage to go, and that's going to be around securing a commercial agreement. And I'll know if they have that in a fortnight's time. Yes, and if you do want to hear that pitch from a singer rock himself, he was generous enough to, I guess, give us a taste of it on the show. You can uh, look back through our archives at ABC Pacific, um, our website, and, and you can find that story there. Um, yeah, very interesting. He already said Netflix was biting, so he wasn't <laughs> so concerned if Hollywood wasn't uh, interested. Uh, but but would be interesting to see if there is a bit of a competitive uh, auction on on his script uh, going on. So. Well, we do know, as, of, as we reported on Friday, Netflix are looking for content in the Pacific at the moment. Indeed. So. Who yes. knows? Maybe this is uh, this could be it. Uh, well, yes, we'll, we shall see. Um, Kyle, thank you for the stories. Thank you, Priyanka. That was Kyle Evans bringing us the latest from around the region, but don't go anywhere. Coming up, you might have heard in the news that the UN has a new high seas treaty that it has passed. We'll find out what that means for the Pacific coming up very shortly. Inside Rugby League on ABC Radio Australia. Hosted by ABC Sport commentator Zane Bojack. Inzane Rugby League is a weekly look at the lighter side of rugby league. Featuring game insights, latest news and interviews with rugby league legends and from around the edges. So close to the action, you can almost taste the turf. Inzane Rugby League. Tuesday nights at 6pm PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. Your home of rugby league in the Pacific. You are listening to ABC Radio Australia. This is Pacific Beat. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan, I can say my name, joining you this Tuesday morning. What impacts do the abandoned wreckages of bombs, artillery and ships from World War II have on our Pacific environments? Well, scientists on Guam are hoping for answers. They are investigating the remnants of an 80-year-old battle between U.S. and Japanese troops that killed close to 20,000 people on Guam's soil. Speaking to reporter Kyle Evans, marine ecologist Monique LaFrance-Bartley says her team hoped to uncover artifacts that haven't been seen for decades. So the first phase is to conduct underwater mapping surveys and coastal elevation surveys. And that's really to allow us to collect full coverage data of the seafloor and the coastal area around the park units that we're working in, which are Aston Beach and Agate Beach. And those data sets will be used to identify areas that warrant further investigation when we return to Guam in the summertime. And when I say targets that warrant further investigation, I mean areas that look like they could be artifacts that we'll send divers down to investigate and use uh, photogrammetry to document. Yeah. So when you say artifacts, so I take it these are things like planes and old old shipwrecks that were basically uh, shot down during the Second World War. Is that what they are? Yep. It definitely could be planes. It could also be artillery. It could be material that was guarded after the war also. We expect to find some of that. So that's kind of interesting for us. 
to put together the puzzle of what was on the seafloor due to the invasion itself and what was on the seafloor due to discarding materials afterwards. Sometimes the amphibious vehicles needed to be lighter, so things were just thrown overboard. You know, in the frenzy of a war, things are just discarded as needed. In the shallow waters offshore of Aston Beach, we found a historical hand-drawn map at the archives that indicated where the Japanese had placed obstacles made of material like wood and coral that were banded together with wire. And those were placed in the shallow offshore waters in efforts to deter the U.S. from reaching the shoreline in the days before the invasion. And then the U.S. deployed underwater demolition teams, also called UDTs, to go and search for these obstacles and detonate them to remove them to allow amphibious vehicles to reach shore and deploy soldiers close to shore as possible. Many of the soldiers drowned because they couldn't swim or their gear was too heavy when they were trying to reach the shoreline. It's really fascinating stuff. How many artifacts do you think are basically unaccounted for at the bottom of the ocean? Are we talking like hundreds and thousands, things that just were basically never documented when they were lost at the time? Oh, that's a really good question. So our initial evaluation of the data we just collected, we have 250 targets that we want to further investigate this summer. Now, I understand there's also an environmental element to this project, and that's to find out, I guess, what impact these artifacts have had on the ecosystem over the past you know, 80 years and whatnot. Yeah, this project's really interesting from an environmental standpoint because these submerged artifacts from World War II are now really integrated into the ecosystem. They're part of the coral reef structure. They're providing habitat for fish and other sea life. They're really contributing to the environment now, you know, almost 80 years later. So it's interesting from an environmental perspective how anthropogenic and human activities have altered the environment. And sometimes that's in a positive way. It could also be in a negative way. One of the aspects that we're looking into is when the U.S. UDTs blew up those obstacles, they often blew up coral reefs. And how has that recovered over 80 years? And that's a question we're going to investigate a little bit further as the study progresses. And it's possible that those coral reef areas have not recovered, and that would potentially lower the coastal uh, resiliency of the island because corals act as a wave attenuation. So when wave energy is coming towards the shore, the coral reduces that and has a lesser impact. So when you have increased wave energy, it leads to erosion more often. It's fascinating stuff. We actually had an incident late last year. I'm not sure if you're aware, but there was actually an earthquake which disturbed a shipwreck, a World War II shipwreck out in the Solomon Islands, which actually led to an oil leak. These graveyards, which let's face it, they're scattered all throughout the Pacific in that old Pacific War theatre. Do you think they're becoming more of a risk as they continue to deteriorate as the years go by? Yeah, that is definitely a concern. That's definitely a a topic of high interest among our colleagues. Of course, as those planes and ships and other artifacts are submerged longer, they become weaker and structurally less stable and have the potential to leak oil and chemicals into the water. It's such an interesting project in a lot of ways. You've got the environmental facet to it. You've also got the the historical aspect to it. I guess when you talk about the invasion of Guam, it's probably not a campaign that you hear a ton about. When you think of warfare in the Pacific, you often hear of places like Guadalcanal and the Philippines. And and I think people often forget that Guam was the site of a major battle as well. Will this project actually help you get a better account of history as well? Yeah, definitely. That's a good question and a good comment. A lot of folks don't realize that Guam was taken by the Japanese one day after the attack on Pearl Harbor. Uh, The Japanese attacked Guam on December 8, 
1941 and secured it from the U.S. by December 10th, so only a few days later. It's also not well known that Chamorro people, the native people of the Mariana Islands, has members of the Guam Insular Guard played a large role in helping to defend the island alongside the Americans in that initial Japanese attack. So it's a huge story that's largely untold, and it's a significant part of the World War II story. So this project really is hoping to bring to light that history and also by identifying the artifacts that are still submerged and putting together the whole story of the battlescape. We're hoping to relay that story in a meaningful way that maybe hasn't been told before. That was marine ecologist Monique LaFrance Bartley from the U.S. National Park Service, speaking there to reporter Kyle Evans. And Monique and team will be back in Guam to carry out phase two, as she mentioned, of the project in July. Pacific leaders, scientists and international law experts are hailing a landmark UN agreement under which a third of the world's oceans will be placed into protected zones by 2030. The agreement comes after 20 years of talks stalled by disputes over funding and fishing rights. Nick Grimm with this report. Good evening-ish. Ladies and gentlemen, they set out on a journey with hearts filled with hope and after two decades of talks, it must have seemed their destination would never hove in sight. The ship has reached the shore. It all finally changed after a marathon two-day sitting of the United Nations gathering dubbed the Intergovernmental Conference on Marine Biodiversity of Areas Beyond National Jurisdiction. Conference President Rena Lee triggering standing applause from delegates representing more than 193 nations, with agreement finally sealed on a high seas treaty. Your hard work, your dedication, your commitment um, to wanting to make this a success is the reason why we are here today. The agreement lays down a legal framework for establishing marine protected areas to help stem the loss of biodiversity in international waters that currently have little protection from human activity. Nicola Clark is an oceans expert with the Pew Charitable Trust. I mean, this is huge. This is um, really, I think, a, a keystone agreement um, if, if we're going to try and protect 30% of the ocean. So uh, this agreement covers the high seas, areas beyond national jurisdiction. And the high seas make up two-thirds of our ocean, and they cover almost half of the surface of, of our planet. Um, so they're vast. Um, and if we do have a goal of protecting 30% of the ocean, the high seas need to be part of that solution. Um, and before, we didn't really have a clear pathway of protecting these areas, these international waters, um, at least not, a, not in a, a sort of fully uh, protected marine protected area or marine reserve. Um, but now that's what this new treaty does, is it gives us that um, that opportunity. It gives us the, the legal framework that we can use to establish protected areas in the high seas. Conservationists are concerned that the final agreement does have flaws, in particular provisions enabling existing bodies responsible for fisheries, shipping and deep sea mining not to conduct environmental impact assessments of those activities. But even so, the treaty is being welcomed by ocean scientists. Oh, I was amazed, really, really amazed, because, I mean, it has taken years, well, decades. So I think it's fantastic news. 
Dr Christine Erber is the Director of the Centre for Marine Science and Technology at Curtin University. You have a vast range of countries from the poorest to the richest with great ranges in coastlines and oceans, let alone, you know, access to the high seas and different political and jurisdictional systems. So I can just imagine that this must have been a major, major undertaking. And how difficult is it going to be to put a treaty like this into place, uh, do you think? Well, I think that will be challenging, but also, I mean, it needs to be meaningful and manageable. So there's no point having some words in place if you you now can't follow up on them and manage it and monitor it. And that's an area where Christine Erber believes Australian scientists can play an important role with surveillance of the oceans to help understand exactly how they are being used. And if you think about the ocean as an ecosystem and the food chain, often by monitoring the megafauna, the top predators, you get a window into the entire ecosystem. If the top predators are not doing well, then something is wrong in the environment and likely with the animals that sit lower in the food chain. So we can listen to these animals. We can listen to human activities. We can listen to vessels. We can listen to offshore installations, constructions, to whatever happens to you. You can't do it quietly as an industry. So Acoustics, just listening, is a way of monitoring your marine life as well as human activities in the ocean. That was Dr. Christine Erber, the Director of the Centre for Marine Science and Technology at Curtin University. And the reporter of that story was Nick Grimm. And for more on that UN High Seas Treaty and what it means for the Pacific, we're joined by Alfred Ralifo, the Senior Policy and Government Affairs Manager at WWF Pacific. Good morning to you, Alfred. Good morning. Um, Bulevinaka. Bulevinaka. So um, we just heard a bit about what that treaty means, but why is it important to the Pacific, do you believe? I think this treaty is super important for the Pacific because the Pacific is the largest ocean in the world. <clears throat> and Pacific Island countries are known as the big blue ocean states. Um, and this is actually key because this treaty helps to address the gaps that exist in the current management of our ocean. Uh, and so that is why this is quite important uh, for the Pacific. Mm. What are those uh, gaps? Uh, at the moment, the high seas uh, does not have uh, um, robust management rules in place to actually establish marine protected areas, to actually um, consider the important role of traditional knowledge of the Pacific Island countries that has been uh, accumulated over the years through experiences. Uh, and this is quite key because traditional knowledge of Pacific Island countries are important parts of uh, management uh, within um, coastal ecosystems and coastal ocean and marine um, environments. But we all know that the ocean is one fluid um, body uh, and um, and the environment and nature does not recognize the boundaries that we had put in place with regards to the the, the, the EEZs of uh, Pacific Island countries. So that is why this is important for Pacific Islands to to try and work together with other member states of the UN to address these gaps. Um, and um, so the other gaps that looks at um, 
the environmental impacts assessments of all activities that happens out at sea in the high seas, looking at the cumulative impacts of all human activities that are taking place now, but also potential um, cumulative impacts of activities in the future. So these are the type of gaps that still exist. So we hope that uh, this new treaty will be able to get countries um, across the world to actually work uh, collaboratively and cooperate with one another, look at the existing um, management rules in terms of competent bodies um, within that, that works in the high seas to actually cooperate with one another to, to ensure that we are able to address these gaps. Mm. Yeah, because the interesting part about this treaty, isn't it, Alfred, is that it, it relates to this thing that we call the high seas, this area that I guess I some say is the wild west of, of our oceans. It it's, can be unregulated because it exists outside these EEZ zones, EEZ zones, sorry, the economic zones that the countries protect. Um, so can you tell us, give us a picture about what are some of the risks when you do have this unregulated space when before these, this high seas treaty existed, what, what is the state of affairs now? What are the concerns? Does it come to illegal fishing, mining perhaps in, in these areas? Yes, definitely. So um, the environmental concerns um, uh, that actually exist in the high seas looks at uh, the, uh, the, um, the existing inter- um, illegal and unregulated fishing activities because it's out of sight, out of mind. Uh, but now that we have this treaty, it's not. It's no longer going to be, you know, um, such. Um, there's a lot of. Um, uh, in addition to these um, environmental crimes um, that exist in the high seas, um, we also have other types of social and economic crimes that takes place as well too. So we are hoping that this would be a start to to, to look at all those types of uh, illegal activities that happen in the high seas. There's a lot of uh, marine genetic research that is also ongoing, uh, and we know that the high seas um, or the areas beyond national jurisdiction, the marine biodiversity is actually a common heritage of humankind. Uh, and so the benefits should be shared equitably and fairly, especially with the small island developing states like the Pacific. And this is what we hope that this new global treaty is going to address and ensure that we we are also part of the decision-making process, but at the same time, we are equitably benefiting from the the benefits that arises from the use of uh, biological resources uh, that exist within the high seas. Mm. Well, I wanted to ask you exactly about that, Alfred, because um, you've just been uh, at the negotiations in New York around this treaty. I, I understand that you've just come back to Fiji. Um, there were some concerns that small developing nations weren't able to participate in negotiations fairly and equally, that it was the larger countries um, that sort of dominated discussions. What was your experience? Do you believe that uh, Pacific representatives were able to explain and and negotiate fairly with others in in, um, discussing this treaty? Uh, yeah, um, so, I mean, this is a major concern for small island developing states because, you know, it's quite costly for us to be able to attend uh, such negotiations. Um, the lack of capacity that still exists uh, within uh, our small island developing states is also another factor as well. Um, and, uh, you know, having to travel all the time to, to these negotiations is actually um, uh, quite burdensome on Pacific Island countries. But um, we do have funding to support that. And uh, the civil society organization Organizations also rallied behind our government representatives uh, to try and ensure that uh, we provide technical support and technical input um, to, to our negotiators. But then at the same time, we are sitting with them within the room.
platform to actually be able to respond to any queries and concerns that they raise while they are participating in the negotiations. And this is something that we hope that will factor in this new treaty to look at the capacity building and transfer of marine technology, including sustainable financing, uh, that will actually be able to support uh, the needs and address the needs of small island developing states. So this is work in progress, and we hope that this is going to improve for the better so that uh, Pacific Island countries can participate um, in a meaningful way, but at the same time be able to contribute effectively to decision-making processes. Mm. Because is there a concern, Alfred, that we, you know, we have this treaty, we have these words that say, you know, a third of our oceans are now protected, that these high seas now um, do have re- regulation over them. But of course, this is a treaty. How exactly will it be enforced? Uh, who will actually be out there in the high seas making sure people um, look at these protections and, and make sure that that people abide by them? Yeah, so, so now that we have uh, an agreed text for the treaty, uh, we will now, now have to work with, uh, with national governments within the region to try and ensure that all of the countries are able to ratify the treaty and put in, in place implementation uh, architectures, um, including national legislations. Uh, to, to be able to do that. But one of the, the important things about these treaties is that it creates an opportunity for enhanced collaboration and cooperation among member states and also among international frameworks and regional bodies uh, that have a competence uh, in terms of uh, management of the high sea areas. Um, and so this is something that is uh, what we're hoping that, you know, now that we have agreed the, to the treaty in terms of text, we now have to translate that text into action. Uh, and action is much more important, and this is where action is needed in terms of our ocean. Um, And, you know, there's a lot of other uh, international um, um, meetings that are happening, and uh, this is, we're hoping that, you know, this new treaty added to that uh, list of of, uh, international frameworks and multilateral environmental agreements could help to address the gaps and strengthen the cooperation, removing the silos that are in place. Um, And uh, fingers crossed we, we are able to achieve what we had proposed in the text. Mm. If you are and just committed in the text. Yes, yes, I guess that's the work ahead. Um, if you are just tuning in to Pacific Beat, uh, we are speaking about this new UN High Seas Treaty that's been passed after almost two decades of negotiations. We're speaking to one of those negotiators or someone who is there uh, looking at the negotiations from WWF Pacific, Alfred Relifo. Um, now, Alfred, you know, we're talking about this treaty and, and you were part of those negotiations. Do you feel that the treaty could have gone done better, particularly it's taken 20 years for us to reach this point. Were there any compromises way, in any way? Do you feel like it fell short in some ways? Yeah, you know, there, uh, this is uh, um, an area that is beyond uh, any national government's jurisdictions. And, you know, there's so many different interests. There's so many geopolitics that are in play. Um, and you the the lens that it took to to come to a treaty is um is testament to to how difficult this is to try and get consensus among the various member states the various political uh geopolitical groups and and also you know it it takes into consideration the the aspirations of those small island developing states the least developed countries but at the same time it looks at the aspirations and the needs of the landlocked developed countries because this is a this is an area that is a common heritage of mankind so it is not difficult, but I think we have, uh, this is the best we can do at this moment. And the further we delay the adoption and, and ratification and put up the action of this treaty, the, the, the worse it becomes for the, for the state of our ocean. So I think, you know, having this treaty is a start. 
And all we can do is work together to move this forward in terms of implementation. And there are provisions where we can make new decisions under this treaty uh, as times uh, go on. Um, And so I'm always positive that this is a good start. Uh, and Alfred, uh, how will this treaty affect something uh, new and concerning for a lot of Pacific leaders, deep sea mining? I know there's been some concern that there weren't uh, particular provisions put in place that required um, the supervision or environmental impact statements of deep sea mining. Um, do you know much about that? Does this new high seas treaty have any impact on, on that new industry? Yes, so, um, I mean, uh, there is already ongoing work on the deep sea mining under the International Seabed Authority, um, and that is another competent uh, body, um, which is part of all the other types of competent bodies in the in the ocean uh, that works on the ocean. And uh, I believe that this treaty actually provides an opportunity where um, countries can work collaboratively together to ensure that any future activity that has potential impacts that will be severe on the biodiversity and ecosystem of the high seas would actually needs to come under uh, robust management rules, including EIA processes. And also that takes place, takes into consideration the cumulative impacts of deep sea mining in addition to all other types of activities that happen in the high sea. Not forgetting the impacts of uh, the cumulative impacts, so, which can be further exacerbated by um, global warming and climate change. And this is an opportunity where, you know, um, all countries, whether it's going to be deep sea mining or, um, or, or overfishing or any type of activity, will need to, to comply with the management rules that, are, that will be set in place and to collaborate and to cooperate. And uh, you also have, you know, the, the treaty has scientific and technical bodies set to establish uh, as a result of this agreement. And this will then look at all the, the assessing of all the environmental impact assessments um, and to, to, to provide guidance to member states and countries on what they need to do to ensure that we do not compromise the health of the ocean. Yes, a very interesting uh, stuff ahead of uh, you and, and lots more to compromise and figure out. Um, thank you so much, uh, Alfred, for joining us this morning on Pacific Beat. Thank you so much. That was Alfred Arlifo from the WWF Pacific. And you are listening to Pacific Beat. We're at the end of the show. Thank you for joining me this Tuesday morning. I'll be back again, same time, same place tomorrow.